Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. John Catone, a psychologist in private practice in Stony Brook, New York, and a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at the Renaissance School of Medicine at Stony Brook. Dr. Catone has numerous peer-reviewed research publications in neuroscience, psychiatry, psychotherapy outcome, and moral reasoning. He is also a regular contributor to Psychology Today, where he has a blog entitled The Cube, and he is author of three books, including Who Are You? Essential Questions for Hitchhikers on the Road to Truth. John, welcome to the show. Aaron, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, you've done some very interesting writing on these topics of sort of Eastern philosophical traditions and psychotherapy. And I'm really excited to talk with you today about some of these topics. In particular, you had written a blog post for Psychology Today about the Kalama Sutta, and we're going to be talking quite a bit about that. And I know you've also written some other interesting books on topics of psychology and consciousness. And we might want to talk a little bit about your books too, briefly too, because they sound very interesting. And I haven't had a chance to take a look at those. But I'm really happy to have you here today. And to begin with, let's start by just talking a little bit about yourself as an individual and as a psychologist and your path into the career that you've chosen. Sure, thank you. I was fortunate in knowing pretty early on in my life that I had wanted this path, the path of psychology. It satisfied a number of my interests and I think a number of my aptitudes. It's really a blessing when you can know early on what you want to do. Yeah. Uh, I know not everyone does. It's a path that I think lies at the intersection of both science and philosophy. And, and, and that is sort of an interesting segue into Buddhism, because I, I think Buddhism does look at the world and our human experience in both a scientific and a philosophical sort of a way. And so I, I always felt that psychology satisfied the inner scientist within me, as well as the inner philosopher. And it allowed for the practice of clinical work and some of the other deep, deeper, more meaningful things that I had wanted to do uh, with my life. Buddhism is something I, I picked up later in high school and in college. I was raised Catholic. I still maintain uh, many of my Catholic beliefs. I never really got rid of my Catholicism uh, so much as I added a number of different perspectives to that Catholicism, Buddhism and Hinduism and Taoism and other things uh, as, as well. But from the Buddhist perspective, yeah, similar to psychology, I did always kind of see that lying at the intersection between science and philosophy. That's an interesting way to look at it. And I know that one great thing about some of these, you know, so-called Eastern philosophical traditions and religious traditions is that they mix well with Western ones, right? There's, there's not necessarily like a conflict of beliefs about God or whatnot, and so I know a lot of people in Western traditions tend to gravitate toward incorporating some of the Eastern belief systems into their life and their practice. And I'm just kind of curious, you, you're in private practice as well, correct? 
Exactly. Yes. I'm in private practice now. There was a time when I was doing exclusively research. Um, but right now I'm in private practice and I also uh, supervise uh, psychiatry residents over at the uh, hospital uh, near me in Stony Brook. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I wonder, do you find ways to be able to weave some of these things that uh, you learn about Buddhism and Taoism that you're interested in into your practice? I try to all the time. I Meditation is something that I do both personally, as well as I integrate it into some of my therapy sessions for patients who are interested and willing. But I also see the practice of mindfulness as extending beyond just the formal practice of meditation, sitting cross-legged, you know, counting your breaths. Mindfulness is something that starts with the formal practice of meditation, but hopefully extends beyond into every moment of your life. In fact, I'm wearing uh, bracelets now that say, be mindful. And I give these out to my patients because with everyone that I work with, there's something that we're working on for them to increase their mindfulness about. Maybe it's, you know, not being on their phone when they're with one of their kids, or, you know, maybe it's, you know, eating the right thing or whatever it may be. And so, you know, in the old days, we used to tie a string around our finger, but, you know, these bracelets are a little bit more comfortable. So, yeah, well, and the same ideas with like prayer beads or rosary beads or sort of physical manifestations that allow one to be focused and mindful on the things that they're important to them and they're meditating about. You know, I was going to say, John, when I normally see somebody wearing a bracelet like that in Hawaii, I assume they're a guest at like Hilton Hawaiian Village or something. <laughs> so, <laughs> right, right, right. I think your, bra- your bracelet is a little bit more meaningful than uh, what I, <laughs> I would typically associate with it. So thanks for pointing that out. So before we start diving into the Kalama Sutta and talking about that, I just wanted to touch briefly on your books. I know you've written, I think, three books and one of them who are you essential questions for hitchhikers on the road of truth sound really interesting. Would you mind saying a few words about, about your books? Sure. Thank you. I was going to a Zen group for a while and Zen, you know, uh, is often kind of described as being the sort of the love child between Buddhism that Bodhidharma brought from India to China and the existing Taoism, which was the prevailing philosophy of the time. And so, you know, those two combined and Zen was sort of the end result. And so I was going to this Zen group for a while and a number of things were percolating to me at at the time. And, but Buddhism in general, but also Zen is kind of Socratic in how the uh, approaches for things and the teachers in Zen generally teach by asking questions. So the, the questions in Zen are often used to paralyze thought And then after your thought is paralyzed for a while, then some sort of insight drops to you. Well, um, in my life, I've been fortunate enough to have a number of different experiences that I guess I would call mystical experiences. Mm. And the way that I describe them in the book is that, you know, imagine you are sitting in a train and the train is going a thousand miles an hour and you're looking out the window and everything is blurry. You see colors, you know, blurred colors passing by. And then all of a sudden um, the train stops for like a brief second and you look out the window and everything just appears clear to you for the first time. And you see the connections between things and you see everything that was previously a blur and you see, uh, you see it clearly. That to me was what a, a mystical experience is like. For me, and I think for a lot of people, they never last very long. They only last 
like a couple of seconds at most. And you just have this amazing experience and you don't quite know how to communicate it to people. Well, in my way of trying to communicate my mystical experiences to people, what I did was I tried to write a book that asks people questions that maybe take them to their own, to the precipice of their own mystical experiences. Oh, wow. I figured that people really, you know, didn't want to hear about the insights of my own personal mystical experiences. <laughs> people would rather have their own. Uh, and so some of these things are things that can't really be communicated with words. The best that I can do as my, you know, Zen teacher would say, a finger pointing at the moon shouldn't be confused with the moon itself. So you actually have to look at the moon yourself. Don't confuse my finger with the moon itself. So I just try to point people in the direction of the moon with some of the questions. And that's what the book is about. Oh, that's super interesting. Well, I'll be sure to take a look at that as soon as I can. And i um, really curious to hear about your thoughts and where you go with that. So thanks very much. And I'll be sure to leave some links um, in the show notes also if people are interested in checking out your work. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about this Kalama Sutta. You know, when I first started reading your writings, what struck me and what I was really interested in is this idea that I think the intersection for me for psychotherapy, psychological practice, and some of these Buddhist ideas, the one thing they share in common is this sort of desire to have some clarity of mind. And I think all psychotherapy traditions probably follow that to some degree, but in particular, cognitive behavioral therapy, interestingly enough, which can be very sort of regimented and very structured, does seek to gain some level of clarity of mind. And when I was reading your thoughts about the Kalama Sutta, I was putting two and two together and seeing the similarities there. And you kind of present some of that. And so I'm really interested in drawing connections between those things today with you. I know that there's several points in the Kalama Sutta that highlight that, and we will go through and talk about some of those. To begin with, though, for those of us who don't know what a, a sutta is and we don't know what the kalama is, would you mind giving us just a brief primer about what is the kalama sutta? How did it come about and how did, how did it sort of piece together? Uh, sure, absolutely. And I guess before I, I go into that, I'll just you know note that Buddhism is something that I've been learning about and practicing for uh, much of my adult life. And Meditation is something I've also been practicing for much of my adult life. However, I wouldn't consider myself an expert on, on Buddhism or even meditation, but I, I'm a student and the Kalama Sutta is a lesson, a, a sutta or a sutra or a teaching that I've learned on a number of occasions from a number of different teachers. And so as I've learned it, there is a village in India called Kesputa, and the village was inhabited by a tribe or people called the, the Kalamas. And these people were visited often by monks and I guess religious people of different persuasions. And each time one of these people would come through, uh, they would get a different teaching, a different lesson. And some of them would conflict with each other and be contradictory. And then at one point, uh, the Buddha actually made his way to the village of Kesputa and the Kalama people wanted to know from, from him, the esteemed Buddha, what he thought they should use as a guide in terms of being able to decipher the truth from all of these conflicted 
teachings that they were getting. And so the Kalama Sutta uh, is a summary of the Buddha's responses to a number of their questions. So a sutta or a sutra is, that would translate as like a teaching then. Right, exactly. And the Kalama Sutta is sort of a summary of the teachings that the Buddha gave to this group of people in that village. Right, as far as I understand it, yes. Right, okay, okay, good. And what is the sort of the essence of the Kalama Sutta? What distinguishes that set of teachings? So I think this offers a really nice summary of Buddhism in general in terms of the need for, I guess, what psychologists would call reality testing. Mm. And we learn a lot of things about the world and a lot of things about morality from many different sources. And some of these sources are esteemed sources. Uh, Some of these sources may be people, other sources may be books, whatever the sources may be. Much of the learning that we get about the world comes from sources external to ourselves. And it can be difficult to know just how true or genuine these sources are. And so the Buddha's advice summarized in the Kalama Sutta is that we should not simply believe that an external source that is teaching us something is true just because they are esteemed or just because this is a source that is venerable and old or just because what they're saying agrees with things that we have heard in the past, that we should actually apply reality testing to all of these things. I've heard Buddhist teachers often point out that the Kalama Sutta is misinterpreted as believing that you should totally distrust Mm -hmm. uh, external sources or venerable teachers or anything like that. And you shouldn't just rely on your own rational thought. I think that's probably an overcorrection in the other direction. The point here is that any source, whether it be external or internal, can potentially be biased. And we shouldn't necessarily simply apply blind faith to any single source, whether it's a written source or a human source, a teacher that we know well and we like and we trust, or traditions, so on and so forth. Everything we should have the courage to subject to our own uh, testing. Mm. And actually that point is really apropos to contemporary things going on in the world today, right? Sort of, you know, with this idea of fake news and people putting out information and social media and from every different source, the importance of being able to try to do some kind of a rational thinking process of what information do we accept and what information do we question and reject? Well, that's exactly right. And and I, I wrote this piece with an eye on what's going on in the present. And in previous articles that I've written, I've talked about us being in an epistemological crisis. I know that's a big word. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. And because it is so easy to spread disinformation 
And because it's very easy to fake things now, especially with digital technology, we're sort of at a point in history where it seems like it's more difficult than ever to know what's real or not. Recently, I, I was one of my accounts were hacked and I was a victim of identity theft mm-hmm. and somebody else was passing themselves off as me, you know, and when, when I called the company, they didn't even know which one was the real John Catone, you know, no. it was like Eminem, you know, will the, will the real John <laughs> Catone please stand up. Uh, so, no. I mean, this is, you know, the world that we live in now. So it's, uh, it's very difficult to tell what's, what's real and what's not. The implied part of the Kalama Sutta that isn't necessarily written in the sutta itself, but I think is implied, is that when in doubt, rely on your Buddhist practice, the Buddhist practice of meditation, the Buddhist practice of mindfulness, the Buddhist practice of adhering to the Eightfold Path as a means of cleaning your lens through which you see the world, you see the teachings that you are taught, And you see yourself and your own thought process because our own thought processes can be just as uh, susceptible to error and bias as an external source. So let's uh, talk about some of the specific points in the Kalama Sutta, some of them that you've touched upon already. And I'm just going to go through and enumerate these kind of as you've laid them out in the past and maybe just get a little bit more commentary on what they mean exactly. And I know some of these often can seem very simplistic and obvious, but oftentimes I think that the depth and the nuance of it, there's more there than meets the eye. So maybe just a little bit more depth of commentary from you about what this means exactly would be helpful. Mm -hmm. So one point is do not simply believe what you hear just because you have heard it for a long time. So what can we take from that? You know, I, I was raised in the Judeo-Christian tradition. I think both Judaism and Christianity are religious paths that re- rely a lot on tradition, things that are done a certain way for many generations. And in some cases, those uh, traditions are not always, uh, you know, questioned. They're just kind of accepted, you know, blindly. You know, and and I think within the context of those particular faiths, there's a value in that. But there are certain traditions that may, over time, lose their value, lose their usefulness, something that may have been uh, important in previous generations, but may not be important today. But if they are carried forward to the present and still practiced in the same way without looking at them and without challenging them, well, it's kind of like the story that we often hear in, in Buddhism of a man crossing a river with his boat. And then after he crosses the river, he continues to carry the boat, even though he doesn't need it anymore. And that mm-hmm. boat weighs him down. At some point, if you don't need the boat anymore, you know, put the boat down and you can walk without it. So a lot of times some of these traditions can be like carrying this boat after we've already crossed the river and we don't need it anymore. Aspects of a particular way of thinking about things that follow a tradition may have been helpful at one time, but may, may not be continue to be helpful, or there may be new information, new knowledge, new technology that might cause one to question the original assumptions and try to try something new or different in terms of the thinking. That's the evolution of thought and the evolution of 
belief systems, I suppose. And it's easy to get stuck in that. Exactly. And the world in previous generations was much more tribalistic than the world now. There is still a significant amount of tribalism that we are subject to now. And and perhaps that is an, an innate part of who we are on a psychological level. But I think a lot of the customs that get passed down from generation to generation are often customs that are shibboleths. They are things that help to keep one tribe together to identify themselves and distinguish themselves from other tribes, but they don't necessarily have much relevance in today's world. And they can, you know, on a really negative side, they can really lead to us being prejudiced against other people, uh, distancing ourselves from other people in a negative way and, and prejudging them and, and, and such. So, you know, we mm-hmm. want to continually look at these things, what mm-hmm. prejudices we hold that, you know, we may have just inherited from our ancestors. Well, let's move on to another point in the Kalama Sutta, and that is do not be quick to listen to rumors. Explain that one to us. I think that on a general social and and psychological level, we are all susceptible to giving an extra ear uh, or an extra few seconds to listening listening to things that might be salacious things that might carry some intrigue to them. But much like with the other aspects of the Kalama Sutta, uh, rumors are something that we can't verify their uh, value. We can't verify the truthfulness of them. So uh, much like with the other points in this teaching, uh, this is simply a recommendation to try to identify as early as possible whether something is coming from a place that has evidence backing it up or whether this is just idle talk, you know, or not. And if it's just idle talk, I don't know, maybe you file it away somewhere uh, just in case, you know, you see more evidence supporting it in the future, but not necessarily making any major decisions on it. So in a psychotherapy practice, for example, if somebody is very anxious about something or coming in talking about something that's very upsetting or distressing to them, mm-hmm. and the reason why is because they heard something from somebody and they're accepting that as fact uh, or truth, you might want that person to take a step back and say, well, you know, just because a good friend of yours said this or you heard this from so-and-so it doesn't mean that that's evidence of, of truth. You would actually need to go gather the truth from reputable sources and not just, not just accept it from somebody who's saying something and may genuinely believe it, but that doesn't make it true. Yeah, I, I think when I encounter this in my practice, very often it's with anxious parents may be worrying about something with their kids Mm. and they may hear something from a friend about what's going to happen in school or on a sports team and they're jump they're quick to jump to conclusions and maybe even fire off an angry email or something like that based on nothing more than a rumor or person's hypothetical uh uh scenario that they're posing you know people who may be given to a rumor at any particular time, may say something like, well, where there's smoke, there's fire, you know, or something like that. But 
that's not always the case. Uh, sometimes the smoke is just steam. It's not, it's not smoke and there's no fire. Right. So this one is one, this next one is something I think we can draw connections to cognitive therapy practices. The concept of do not confirm anything just because it agrees with your scriptures. Mm. What do we make of that one? Yeah. So there's a, a lot of overlap between what cognitive behavioral therapists would call cognitive distortions and what philosophers would call logical fallacies. And in, in some respect, you know, they are really synonymous with each other in many ways. And so in the realm of cognitive behavioral therapy, there's something called the confirmation bias, which is when we only remember the things that agree with our position and we don't remember the things that counter our position or disagree with our position. And philosophers would call this cherry picking uh, mm -hmm. as a logical fallacy where you have a, a, a lot of data out there, you have a lot of evidence, some of it is supporting, some of it is uh, in disagreement, and you only select the things that agree with your thesis or your position, or in this case, your scriptures, but you're not looking at the stuff that disagrees with it or counters it in any way. You know, the, the media landscape, whether it's on cable TV with cable news or, you know, in newspapers or talk radio, whatever it may be, uh, this is really, I think, how pundits make a living by engaging in confirmation bias and cherry picking and some of the articles that I've written in terms of helping people to stay calm and stay sane, uh, especially during the last two years of the pandemic, where there was uh, a lot of not only confirmation bias and cherry picking going on, but a lot of dissemination of conspiracy theories and disinformation and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. There was really a, a, a lot going on um, on cable news and, and amongst pundits in any medium with, you know, looking to just the evidence that supports their, their thesis or their theory and ignoring anything that conflicted with it. Yeah. So like one real life example that comes to mind for me uh, is maybe about President Joe Biden. Now, I know nothing about Joe Biden's mental mm -hmm. state, his cognitive state, whether or not he actually has dementia or not. I have no idea. But there's you hear the stuff being kicked around that, oh, you know, he's got dementia. He's got these mm -hmm. cognitive issues. And so then somebody posts some. Um, you know, 10 second clip of Joe Biden stuttering or something. Mm -hmm. And you say, oh, look, see, here's this clip of him stuttering. This is an example of how he has dementia. Mm -hmm. Could that be an example of confirmation bias? Yeah, uh, that's that's a good example. So and, and we also don't know a lot of times how clips are edited uh, mm -hmm. to make certain things seem different than they actually appeared if you saw the full video or if you saw the full clip. But, you know, we knew the, these things happen all the time in, in the media. Uh, things are purposely taken out of context or, you know, as you said, you'll see the clips of him stuttering, but you wouldn't see the clips of him making it through a very difficult series of decisions or meetings. Obviously, a lot of that stuff is private anyway. Mm -hmm. But um, in a different realm, uh, we've talked previously uh, a little bit about Steven Pinker and, and some of his books and 
one of the things he talks about all the time with, with the news media is uh, obviously you never hear reports about the planes that don't crash. Right. Uh, so yeah. it, uh, you know, it, it sort of skews your perception of things when all you're hearing is uh, reports in one particular direction. Yeah, well, and again, uh, around the confirmation bias, if you happen to have a phobia of flying or a fear of something, and you're looking for the piece of evidence that, you know, a plane, you know, crashed in the Swiss Alps or something, that that's a confirmation that flying is dangerous and that you shouldn't do it. So, that, right. So, I mean, it's especially, yeah. And, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, that's where, you know, when I've worked with people in the past around these sorts of issues around safety, especially flying, you know, we, we've tried to employ some reality testing to the process and, okay, let's actually look at the data. Let's look at how many flights there actually are on a yearly basis and how many, you know, crashes are there. And of course the, the numbers are infinitesimally small, you know, yeah. far less than 1%, you know, 0.0001%, right. which, you know, again, you're more likely to get struck by lightning. When something is played on an endless loop, especially in a very emotional and dramatic way on TV or in an internet video that can all often be remembered more easily than the, the boring data. Mm -hmm. So a similar one then in the Kalama Sutta is do not foolishly make assumptions. This also sounds uh, dangerously similar to another cognitive concept. Tell us about that one. Uh, yeah, we, we, I guess make assumptions all the time. I think the brain likes to fill in the gaps. Um, we like closure. And so when we don't know something, I, I, part of this might be evolutionary, that it actually serves an evolutionary purpose to try to fill in the missing information to keep ourselves safe. You know, so some of these practices, while they have a negative connotation to them, in a previous generation of our species or a previous phase of our species served various survival instincts. But, you know, much like with the boat, after we've crossed the river, we don't want to keep carrying something that is only a burden to us now. And a lot of times, well, you know, the old saying about assumptions, it makes an ass out of you and me to yeah. assume. And so I think, but the mind naturally goes there very often. We don't know something because, uh, it's, I think, part of our evolutionary inheritance, essentially. Mm -hmm. So that's really fascinating that the Buddha taught this in um, the Kalama Sutta and discussed this. I, I'm just wondering, like, on a, on a practical basis, how does one not make an assumption or recognize when they're making an assumption that might be affecting them in some way that they, you know, that that's not good for them? Yeah, well, look, this isn't easy. And I think this is where the habits, the practices, and the tendencies that we engage in over time, whether it's in regular psychotherapy or in the Buddhist practice of meditation, mindfulness, following the Eightfold Path, these are the things that, uh, as I said before, they clean the lens through which we see ourselves, our own thinking patterns, and the world around us. And so meditation I, I have always said is sort of a, a more subtle form of psychotherapy, uh, or you could look at it in the reverse way. Psychotherapy is a, a, a more gross level form of meditation. Uh -huh. In both cases, you are looking at 
your own thought processes. And, you know, it's, a, it's, it's really, in some respects, a form of meta thinking, you know, mm-hmm. you're thinking about your thinking. Mm-hmm. As when you're sitting in meditation, and you see the train of thoughts pa- pass by you, you're recognizing patterns, and you're gradually becoming an expert in your own mind by seeing what thoughts and what associations come up. And in therapy, you're doing the same thing, but also with the help of somebody else external to yourself who's offering commentary on that. So a lot of these things can really benefit from the regular practice of both meditation or psychotherapy and having teachers that can help mirror back to you certain things that you can't see yourself. You know, we, we, I, I can't see my own nose. In order for me to see my own nose, I have to look in a mirror or I have to be on camera and zoom like this, but I can't see my own nose. I need someone or something to mirror it back to me. And I think a good therapist or a good teacher, a spiritual teacher can do that, help mirror back to us the thing about things about our thought processes that we're not able to see. Similar one, do not abruptly draw conclusions by what you see and hear. Tell us about that one. Things aren't always what they seem. And we are subject to a lot of different uh, illusions. Uh, The Buddha might say, in addition to illusions, we're also subject to delusions. Uh, Especially now, uh, you referred to the deep fakes before uh, which anything we see on the internet, you know, we have to question because it could be anything we really see on any, you know, screen or rectangle, you know, these rectangles, whether they're computer screens or phones or TVs, uh, anything we see on any of our rectangles, we really have to sort of be suspicious of because it's so easy to fake in one way or another. You know, we all know that there are conspiracy theorists out there and, and people who, for various motives, would, would seek to put things out there that may not be true. But a lot of times we may see something because it agrees with perhaps our own perspective on something and we'll be quick to believe it. Or we'll see something and just because it disagrees with our perspective, we'll be quick to, you know, reject it. And again, I think the idea here is to really challenge ourselves to look deeper, to try to understand, are there forces within us that are preventing us from being as objective as we can be about things? This next one is still very similar. So I'm not sure that there's maybe some more to add to it. Do not be fooled by outward appearances. Is that sort of like charlatans or just sort of like not accepting something the way it appears the first time that you see it and looking a little deeper like where would you go with that one i'll take this in a slightly different direction in clinical practice my psychology background i've actually been trained in freudian theory and psychodynamic psychotherapy and i've also been trained in cognitive behavioral therapy and you know what i try to do is really combine the best of both approaches And so while we're talking about cognitive behavioral therapy here in the context of this article, uh, there's another part of me that practices therapy from a more Freudian or psychodynamic perspective. And in that tradition, we talk about something called transference Mm -hmm. and countertransference. And so transference is when patient is in therapy with the therapist and the therapist, you know, may remind 
the patient of someone they know in their personal life. Could be the, the way that they look or their position of power in that situation or how they dress or the language that they use, whatever it may be. And they act towards the therapist as if they are that person in their personal life. And similarly, you know, when a therapist does the same thing with a patient, they, we call it countertransference. So there's this dynamic in a therapy room with the transference on the one hand and the countertransference on the, one, on the other hand, where you have two people interacting and they may be making assumptions about each other, but based not primarily on who the people actually are, but by what their outward appearances may remind them of. And we may be you know, quick to either feel negative things towards this person or make certain assumptions about this person that may not be true. You know, it's very interesting the things that by virtue of transference, people have projected onto me over the years, you know, things that, you know, haven't been true, but because I reminded them of some person in their life that maybe they had conflict with, they just assume these things have been true and vice versa. There have been people who based on their identity and their profile, what type of person they were or what type of job they had, I may have, you know, made similar assumptions about them. And, you know, those things turned out not to be true, but, you know, in the therapy office, this is all grist for the mill and we're encouraged to kind of take these things out of our unconscious, talk about them and play with them and work with them and, and then discuss, well, why did we each have these assumptions that turned out to be wrong? And, you know, if we're having these assumptions about each other, is it possible that other people are having these assumptions about us or we're having these assumptions about other people? And the therapy room is, it's a classroom where we, you know, learn about our own tendencies in these areas. I think the transference, counter-transference example is a perfect one. So thank you for bringing that up as an explanation for this, because it's true that when people meet people in the world on their day-to-day lives or, you know, don't know somebody very well, all they really have to go on is their first impressions. And you can't really know a whole lot about somebody based on the first impression other than what your feelings are about that person on your first impression that come much of that comes from within you. Yeah. And look, I, you know, I'm guilty of this myself. You know, you're driving behind somebody and they have a bumper sticker for, you know, the person you didn't vote for and, you know, you start developing thoughts about them and so on and so forth. And, you know, you meet someone at Thanksgiving dinner and, you know, you, you learn that they, you know, supported the other person and uh, you start developing assumptions about that person. And then, you know, many times those assumptions are not true. And, you know, we're all kind of subject to these selective biases that we employ at different times or these assumptions that we just kind of make, you know, and a lot of them are based on the outward appearances and heuristics and all of that stuff that social psychologists tell us we should avoid. Absolutely. Right. And in the, in the bumper sticker example, the person who's driving the car might have voted for the person on the bumper sticker, and you Mm -hmm. still don't know what that person is really like, but that person also could be driving somebody else's car. That's true. That's very true. Right. Exactly. Right. But your first reaction is like, this person is, you know, I know what this person is like. Exactly. Knowing anything about them. And so I think that is a perfect example 
of not being fooled by outward appearances. So yes, thank you. <laughs> How about do not hold tightly to any view or idea just because you are comfortable with it? You know, Buddhism kind of challenges us to challenge ourselves. And, you know, the comfortable life is one in which we're not really challenging ourselves, the life that is psychologically comfortable. Uh, the world is so much more intricate and complex than what we have the capacity to really appreciate, especially uh, in one lifetime. And I think that if we only stick to the beliefs and the perspectives and the people and the places that we're comfortable with, you know, we're not really growing as a person. In, in my office, I have a, a Rubik's cube, a solved Rubik's cube that has, you know, six sides and a different color on each side. I don't have it with me here, but I have this, you know, tissue box that has six sides. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I go through the exercise of showing people, you know, the Rubik's cube, you know, from a perspective where they can only see one color on one side. And then I ask them to tell me, you know, what color they see. And then, you know, they tell me, and then, I tell them what color I see and it becomes clear that, well, you know, we're both looking at the same object, but we're seeing something different. How can that be? Well, it's because, you know, this object has six sides. It's much more complex than when it appears on the surface. On the surface, it appears like a two-dimensional object can only have one side and one color, but it's really a, a three-dimensional object with six sides and, you know, has many colors on, you know, each of its six sides. And, you know, I think I use that as a metaphor for a lot of things, but one of the things that I use it as a metaphor for is to sort of explain in this very simple example of a cube, just how much more complicated things are, intricate and complicated things are than we really have an appreciation for. And so if we just stick with the side that we're comfortable with, we're going to lose, you know, five sixths of the reality of this thing. Right. And so as a just a general thinking exercise to consider looking at things from other points of view, even if those aren't really comfortable to see it that way, doesn't mean you need to change your mind about something, but at least being open to viewing that there may be other ways of looking at something. Yeah, at the very least, I mean, you, you need a second perspective to determine that this is a three-dimensional object instead of a two-dimensional object. So having at least that second perspective, you know, is helpful, but as many as you can as possible. Yeah. Now, John, if you can explain to me how to try to see something from more than four dimensions, I would be forever grateful because I'm trying to explain that to my son and I'm having a very difficult time doing it. <laughs> yeah, I guess, you know, we're all going to have to immerse ourselves in string theory with uh, 11 dimensions or something. Probably, probably. So sort of on a similar line, do not accept as fact anything that you yourself find to be logical. Yeah, again, you know, I think this kind of speaks to how can we be confident in our own logic? And so, you know, this meta thinking process that we go through both with therapy and in meditation is an exercise in elucidating for ourselves, what are the rules of logic that we live by and how can we be so sure that those rules of logic are not without flaw? Mm -hmm. So just because we find something logical and because it's logical, we're comfortable with it doesn't necessarily make that thing true. Like if uh, a person burns, it means they're a witch. 
Right, right, right. Of course. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. So, so yeah. So there are all sorts of, you know, again, these lot, well, logical, right? We were going back before to these logical fallacies. And, you know, logical fallacies are things that seem to make sense on a surface level. But when you recognize that each logical fallacy is supported by some sort of error in thinking, it helps you to recognize that many of the things that we hold true, we can't necessarily believe that they are true just because they apply to the logic that we use, because that logic may be flawed. Yeah, I seem to remember way back in my training, a time when I was at the state hospital, and I think there were some three patients that were there all at the same time, all who believed they were Jesus. And they were convinced that they were Jesus. They could give you all the reasons why they were Jesus. But the idea that there were two other people there who also thought that they were Jesus was sort of like made the whole thing sort of illogical. And obviously, none of them were able to see that the other two had their own reasons for believing that they were Jesus. They were just in their own head. Their source of logical deductive reasoning was accurate to them. Yeah, you know, I think we try to teach our children rules of logic. It starts in, you know, mathematics at at a certain point when you take mathematics and then graduates over to philosophy. But there are different layers and different levels of thinking and, and reasoning. In some cases, you know, we need higher cognitive abilities to be able to engage in the higher levels of reasoning. But in other cases, we simply need exposure and experience with uh, seeing the flaws in the lower levels of reasoning. Now, as with many things, you know, we're probably better off with a lower level of reasoning than with no reasoning. But if we think of this as like a pyramid, it's better to continually graduate to higher levels of reasoning when possible. But uh, it takes time and it takes effort and it takes a good teacher and being shown some of the errors of these things that people don't often get to see. Speaking of teachers, do not be convinced of anything out of respect or deference to your spiritual teachers. Yeah. So one of the logical fallacies is the ad hominem fallacy. And then sort of the mirror opposite of that is the argument from authority. And sometimes I think, you know, we hold people in such high esteem that we believe them without question. We, we just sort of offer blind faith to them. Mm-hmm. And either, you know, we're lazy and we don't want to challenge the things that they say, or, you know, we're afraid to be disrespectful. Uh, and so we don't challenge the things that they say for, for that reason. When I was writing the epistemology articles, there was a phrase that I sort of, you know, distilled down a, a lot of what I think happens for people. And that's so much of what we take to be truth is actually belief. And we believe it because it came from a source in which we have faith. And so our faith in certain people or certain teachers uh, is so great sometimes that it can convince us that the things that they tell us is actual truth or actual knowledge. When in fact, what we really have is just belief. If we didn't learn these things directly from our own experience, then it's not really knowledge, it's belief. And so distinguishing between belief and truth seems like a fine distinction, but a very important distinction. 
John, I'm going to read this last part of the Kalama Sutta that you presented in your writing, and it's a paragraph. So I'm just going to just read the whole paragraph because sure. I think it's interesting and relevant. And then maybe you could say a few comments on that. You should go beyond opinion and belief. You can rightly reject anything which, when accepted, practiced, and perfected, leads to more aversion, more craving, and more delusion. They are not beneficial and should be avoided. Conversely, you can rightly accept anything which, when accepted and practiced, leads to unconditional love, contentment, and wisdom. These things allow you time and space to develop a happy and peaceful mind. This should be your criteria on what is and what is not the truth on what should be and what should not be the spiritual practice. So, and you say that this comes from the unofficial publication of the Chuangyan Buddhist Monastery. Could you summarize in plain words for us kind of what you're getting, what, what they're getting at with that? Let's remember here that this is a lesson in Buddhism given by the Buddha. There are lessons from different religious and spiritual teachings that may say the opposite of this. And if you want to follow that religious and spiritual path, then, you know, you commit to those teachings and, and that particular path, which may conflict with this path, but to follow in the tradition of the Buddha. And, and, and I think that for Buddha or Buddhism, the sine qua non of the practice is a commitment to truth in, in some capacity. And so the final take-home message here is that to fully commit to this practice of Buddhism, you want to be continually asking yourself questions about whether the beliefs that you have and the sources of those beliefs are things that lead to greater peace and contentment for the self or mm -hmm. greater suffering and craving for the self. You know, this question of, of whether these things lead to more peace and contentment versus more craving might not always be an easy question to answer because they may have one answer in the short term and another answer in the long term. You know, there are certain unhealthy things that we do that make us feel really good and peaceful in the moment, but in the long term, they're really sowing the seeds of future suffering. So, and again, I think it takes a good teacher or a good therapist to help you to look at your own thought processes and to figure out whether the actions and beliefs that you're engaging in are really over time leading to more uh, suffering or are they leading to more contentment? So John, any final thoughts on this subject that we've been talking about regarding the Kalama Sutta, psychotherapy, and your take on the intersection of these things? You know, I think the Buddha had his forbidden questions and depending on which tradition you follow, there's, you know, any number of forbidden questions. Uh, I've, I've been taught that the Buddha had 10 forbidden questions and, you know, they, they usually relate to, you know, these large existential questions like, um, you know, is the universe eternal? Is the universe infinite? Are the soul and the body the same? Will the enlightened one be reborn after death? Will the enlightened one be reborn and not reborn after death? You know, uh, is there some sort of life after death? Things like that. And, you know, the Buddha didn't answer these questions as far as I know and as far as I was taught, because there was no sort of scientific way or a logical way to really answer that. Mm. And he didn't want to be caught in the trap of 
giving an answer to something that could, you know, later be shown to be just a belief. He didn't have a strong ego need to develop a following by giving people palliatives that would just make them feel better. So he didn't want to answer those questions. And so I think that the spiritual path is one of challenging oneself and it is difficult, but there are rewards, I think, to it along the way and and hopefully more rewards as we go on by engaging in this hard work, because I think when we do that, we have more moments in our lives where we're able to see things clearly. And, you know, earlier I gave the metaphor that I had in my book about riding in a train at a thousand miles an hour and all of the blurry things, you know, becoming clear for a second when the train stops. I think the more we engage in the practices that the Buddha taught, the practices that I think good therapists teach, the more we may be able to slow the train down. We may not be able to slow it down to a full stop, but we can kind of slow it down to maybe, you know, 40 miles an hour or so, so that the things that we're seeing all around us are a bit clearer than they were when the train was going a thousand miles an hour. Yeah, fascinating, John. Thank you. It's really clear the intersection between these Buddhist thoughts and beliefs and what goes on in psychotherapy. And that's really, really clear. And I really appreciate you taking the time to kind of talk about this and dive into it a bit deeper. So thanks so much for coming on the show and talking with me about these topics. It's been really fascinating. Thank you, Aaron. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, I really enjoyed the interview. And uh, hopefully we'll get to chat again sometime. Likewise. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, you can go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks on your preferred podcasting host to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please take some time to give Mind Tricks a good rating and review wherever you are listening. It really helps get the word out to new listeners. And please like and share Mind Tricks posts on Twitter and Facebook by following your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.